0: For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is
1: going and getting half of it right.
2: One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck.
0: Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Yasha Kakis-Wolf, who's the chief marketing officer at Mozilla. Mozilla, most of us probably know for Firefox browser, but it's also his parent organization is a nonprofit. Yasha and I met at a brand summit back in San Francisco in the late spring, early summer, and he gave a rousing conversation and talk around trust, data practices that we as marketers may have slipped into, as well as the proliferation of marketing technology. And today we really take on these issues of trust, data, lean data practices that Mozilla is advocating and making available to the world, just like all of their great technology. And we really take on this notion of what should we be standing for in this world? And and can trust actually drive business performance? Meaning if we do things that help consumers and the people that we serve trust us more, does it actually matter in the end? And there's a revealing answer that I don't wanna spoil. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Yasha Kekas-Wolf. Yasha, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, I really appreciate being here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's been a couple months, but we met back at the Brand Summit in San Francisco, and you really gave this rousing talk. And I want to dive into that during this interview. But first, I thought it would be helpful if you could just describe Mozilla for those that may not be familiar with the company beyond Firefox, and then maybe tell us a little bit about your role as CMO.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Again, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I had a a blast giving that talk at the brand summit and appreciate that you liked it. I've been at Mozilla now for about three and a half years, actually a bit above that, almost four years. And when I learned about the opportunity at Mozilla, something struck me almost out of the gate. And that was that I thought that I knew about Mozilla. I thought I felt something about Mozilla, and I thought that I felt that Mozilla was good, but I didn't understand everything that Mozilla was responsible for, other than I knew very well that Mozilla built Firefox, and I had been a Firefox user. What I am super proud of being a part of this organization is how we work and what we are trying to accomplish. And this really sets us out as a cohort of one or within a cohort of one in the technology space. We are an organization who is fiercely focused on one mission, and that's to maintain an open and accessible internet. And we do that uniquely because we build consumer technology products like Firefox that have a reach to hundreds of millions of people. And we're going to continue to do that. We've made Firefox, I think, awesome over the course of the last two years. It had its massive relaunch in November of last year with Firefox Quantum, and it continues to see really great user feedback from that. But we're also developing more products and more features that are in and around Firefox that are all intended to support that mission by delivering users the ability to take control of their online experiences. So we're a technology company first, we build products first, we build products like Firefox first, and we do that because it helps us create great leverage to support and maintain our mission. In addition to that, Mozilla as an organization is also focused very heavily on how do we influence the policies that regulate the internet? We're not a lobbying organization. We're actually technically a not-for-profit at the highest level of the organization. So we work very closely with our governmental partners to make sure that the legislation that they introduce or that that they've introduced that we'd like to see changed represents the best interest of people who use the internet. Let me give you an example. Back a few years ago in the U.S., there was a big discussion around how the Internet could be regulated more effectively for users by the U.S. government. It was our team, a team sitting in San Francisco, just a handful of policy experts who helped Tom Wheeler and Tom Wheeler's team at the FCC at the time, actually introduce the language that regulated the Internet in the U.S. behind Title II. So our team is small in some cases, but has an intent to have a very large outsized impact into the world, all to benefit users. We also have a big education focus, and we're explicitly trying to help people all over the world understand how the internet can benefit them when they're in control of their experiences. So that combination of those three areas with an enormous emphasis on building great products helps us as an organization keep our center, build great products for people, and ultimately impact our mission, which is to maintain an open and accessible internet. So a little bit more information maybe than most people know about Mozilla, but when you do use Firefox, you get a great product, you don't have to make any compromises, but you also should feel good about the fact that you're supporting an organization that has a very broad remit and a very focused mission to support you as an individual on the internet.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, and I I definitely use Firefox. You also are, I don't know if you own it or, but pocket the, you know, being able to save, save, if you will, things to read later.
1: That's right. Well, so one, thank you for using Firefox. I appreciate that. We appreciate that. Every Firefox user helps make the collective kind of more safe, and we hope you get great utility from it. We also do have additional products. Pocket is one of my favorites. Pocket actually joined the Firefox and Mozilla family about a year ago via an acquisition. It was one of the first bigger acquisitions that we've made, and Pocket we're excited about because Pocket helps us as individuals really solve a problem that is so pervasive right now, and that's we are absolutely distracted by almost everything trying to take our attention into something that is all about them. The businesses are trying to advertise to you, the news networks, they're trying to get you to read other things because it benefits their business. Pocket is all about helping you organize information that is worth your time. And we think that's a noble area to focus in a environment where we are just massively distracted with everybody trying to steal our attention.
0: Got it. Do you also tell me about, like, what's the role of CMO look like at Mozilla?
1: Well, there are many parts of my role as CMO that are analogous to all of our peers in the kind of executive marketing world. So we're responsible for here the general strategy for marketing. We're responsible for kind of the understanding of the impact that we have into the, the products that people use. We have to think about marketing cost per acquisition and LTV. So many of the dynamics that you would expect to feel are just the same. Something that's unique here is that The leverage that we have in the multiple brands that exist, Mozilla, Firefox, Pocket, and more, provides a pretty unique way to be able to go to market. And that allows for us to develop, I think, a pretty sophisticated brand strategy that doesn't show up in every organization. So as a CMO here, I think one of the biggest differentiators for me is that I do have a stable of really powerful and interesting brands that I get to use in addition to the very traditional technology demand generation and positioning marketing work that many of my are responsible for.
0: Good. Good. Well, let's get into this talk about this presentation. It was, I think the title of it was Magic Growth Equations Don't Exist. That's right. Because they don't, let's be clear. <laughs> well, and I'm still to some degree stunned, dismayed maybe about the Office Max direct mail example that you started out the conversation with, because it, it kind of slaps you in the face as a marketer.
1: Yeah, for your listeners, the story that we begin the presentation with is just that. It's about an incredibly unfortunate incident that happened. It was written up in the Wall Street Journal and many other places where OfficeMax sent a piece of, uh, like a mailer, I would call it junk mail, but absolutely can back the business. They sent it to a customer of theirs and had a typo on it that was because of bad data that referenced the family's name and then right below it said their daughter died in a car crash. And it brought up a ton of horrible memories for this family. And it was completely unavoidable, except for the fact that the business that pretty much every marketing team is in is trying to collect as much and use as much data as possible, and that is bound to cause issues. This is kind of a central theme in the story that I try and tell through this presentation. It's that marketing has lost a lot of what I believe marketing can be really great at and how it can contribute in the organizations because we've become really lazy. And we've become lazy because we have access to dearths of data that we just didn't even 10 years ago. And so there's this kind of constant search for, well, if I just find one more source of data or one more attribute, I can find that growth equation that my CEO and the board are all going to be happy with my job because of. And when you focus on just trying to find that growth equation, you forget about the rest of marketing and you can do really damaging things to your current customers and the prospects that you're interested in.
0: Right, right. Well, and this is maybe all too pertinent this year with the Cambridge Analytica and the Wells Fargo examples that keep coming, apparently.
1: I mean, it just, it hasn't slowed down and it's been happening like big, massive data breaches. Many micro bad usages of data have been happening progressively over the course of the last several years as more and more of our information is available online. And like as a person who spends time on the internet, like it's very hard to understand how much of your information, what kinds of things you do are actually being viewed. And the inverse of that is that because you don't know how much is being viewed, a massive amount is being collected and every business is trying to figure out how much more can I get. I think it's a pretty nasty cycle that we're all stuck in as marketers right now.
0: I totally agree. I totally agree. And at the heart of this is trust, right? I think you made that point as well. But I wondered if you could share because you had some great data points or examples. Just tell us a little bit about like how big is trust really? Like, can we quantify it in any way? Yeah,
1: so we can absolutely quantify trust, but like at its core... There is an economic system that most marketing teams and most companies sit behind that really challenges the way that we think about success like you and I and our peers in kind of the marketing world, when we think about success, many times we go first to what is solely success is defined by our economic contribution to the business. And that is absolutely a priority for businesses, and it always should be. What we oftentimes lack is a meaningful discussion, as meaningful and as detailed as we can have about the financial impact in the business. What we lack is that same kind of detailed conversation around how we are developing trust with our core consumer population or business customers. We just don't think about it as a peer. And part of what I believe needs to happen is that marketing can actually start to contribute to how businesses think about and measure the trust that they have in the businesses that they run with the customers that use their product. And it's unbelievably important right now. You asked if I could mention some of the stats that I've pulled up. Probably the most important thing that we should all understand as marketers, especially if you happen to sit in the technology space, is that we are on a horrible path as it pertains to the informed public and the general population trusting what we are doing as businesses. There's a great set of research that's been done over the course of the last several years by Edelman. It's called the trust barometer. And the trust barometer goes out and asks you know a big N of people generally how they feel like businesses are treating them. And they come back with effectively a composite score that says, this is the percentage of people that we ask that have trust in business. And over the course of the last several years, it's been declining year over year. And from 2017 to 2018, those people who are out in the world buying products that are informed that understand what they're doing, right? Not passive acquisition of stuff, they are declining at a faster rate than the general population in their trusted businesses. So we see in organizations like Edelman putting out really important studies for us to see as marketers that tell us very specifically, people don't trust us as businesses. And we have to take that at face value and not try and explain it away and dig into why could that be happening. And it's interesting as you start to dig a bit more into trust in business, because If you accept this data generally and this idea that businesses are being trusted less by people, when you start to look in, well, maybe the geographies that I work in, maybe uh, perception is different. We're an enlightened country in the U.S. and in North America, we understand that businesses are trying to make things for us. But when you dig a little bit, make things for us that create value for us, but when you dig a little bit deeper into the Edelman data in particular, it shows something even more staggering. In the U.S., trust is not just declining, it's crashing. In the last year, we've had almost a 20% decrease in trust in the popularly informed public in the US alone. So it, this is a crisis of confidence that the general population has in businesses. And the leap that I don't think is hard to make is that what we see happening, playing out in the world, whether it's the Office Depot example that I use in this presentation or you know the Home Depot data breach or the Adidas data breach or the Ikea and TaskRabbit data, like these are happening every single day. The access to information, the information that's being shared unwittingly from people is a massive contributor into this decline in trust. We're taking it as businesses. Many businesses are taking it, but we're not taking good care of our customers' data, and that impacts the trust that they have in us.
0: Right, right. Well, you talk about there's a consumer shift or a consumer change as well and becoming more, I don't know if the right word is conscientious. Sure. But how do you think about that as somebody that tries to serve the general public?
1: So my kind of description and preamble of Mozilla isn't necessarily what I would write on a website, but it is how I think about Mozilla kind of emotionally. It's these different areas that we work on. And when you use a product like Firefox as a consumer, you do, I do, You should get all the utility that you expect, but you also have an opportunity to feel good about the decision to support an organization that's trying to do good in the world and is genuinely focused on it. So back a few years ago, we started to think about A handful of experiences that we had in our networks, in Mozilla, in the marketing group, in our research group in particular, and they kind of go like this. Maybe a few years ago, and I'm going to use some very North American-centric examples, but maybe a few years ago, you had a colleague or friend who would buy their food from Whole Foods. And they would buy their food from Whole Foods, and when you made jokes about how expensive it was, they'd say, yeah, it's expensive. But two things are important to me. One, I get the best quality, so they know that. And the brand of Whole Foods represents the best quality. But they also felt really good about shopping at Whole Foods because Whole Foods treats their employees well, and Whole Foods supports local farmers. This kind of twofold: I get the utility, I'm okay with playing a premium because I get the utility and I feel good about it. Like, that was interesting. And we saw the same thing kind of happen when people would buy Tom's shoes. And they're like, I like the style of Tom's shoes, but I really appreciate the fact that whenever I buy a pair of Toms, that I know that another pair of shoes are being given to somebody who needs them. So that we kind of saw this happening and we felt like maybe there's something there. Maybe we could do some research and understand that if this is just about the privilege or the kind of exclusivity of the social circles that we were in, or maybe there was something else that was happening. So we went out into the world. As a research team in marketing. And we did a, a series of research projects in eight different countries around the globe and of a couple thousand people. And what we found is that this kind of little example, these two little examples that I gave you, are actually more present all over the world than we would have ever expected. And you, know, you said people are maybe becoming more aware. Like, I think that there's this very simple to describe idea that individuals all over the globe are waking up. To the fact that they can't have a preference on the brands that they choose to buy from and work with because they're informed and they want to be in control. And it also happens that that group of people index a little bit higher and are more aware of how their information is being used. So this kind of mindset is starting to show up. We've chosen to name this mindset as an organization. It's become an an entry target for us as a segment that we think could help Mozilla's business be impactful over the years. We call this group, this mindset, the conscious chooser. And the conscious chooser, as a group of people, are not small. And the very logical thing you do when you do research and you find a trend that looks like this emerging trend of the conscious chooser is as you start to look at the kind of geographic distribution, you start to look into the psychographic information based on your research, and then you start to do sizing studies. And we actually went out and after we identified this group of people and these behaviors exist in the world and we named it, we sized this group. And we've actually found that the conscious choosers are in the neighborhood of about 19 to 22, 23% of the internet population. So if you believe current numbers, right, the global population on the internet is about 3.5 to 3.7 billion people. This is 750 to 950 million people in the world that are choosing to work with brands because they feel good about working with them, because they trust them, because they believe in the values of the organization. They're not giving up the want and the need for utility, but there's a different decision-making process that they have for buying so we see this kind of change in behavior in this growing segment and trend as a very big driver that has to be a wake-up call for marketers not just here at mozilla but everywhere if you take into account that trust is on the decline and we make a leap that says the trust is on the decline because organizations aren't treating people like people on the internet in particular and there's a group of people who make up a quarter almost of the population of the internet who are going to make decisions because they trust the brands that they work with. Like, boy, we better be doing things differently as marketers.
0: Right. No, that's a great point. You know, but I guess the the critics are out there, right? Around, you know, whether it's maybe not about driving trust. I, think, I don't think many people would argue with being a trustworthy company or trustworthy brand, but this notion of, you know, like use Whole Foods as an example, just for the moment, you know, Whole Foods, you could say has sort of a purpose to what it is that they're trying to put out into the world, or at least historically. Yep you know and there are critics of so-called quote unquote purpose driven marketing in your mind i know you've you've shared some data around this but you know how does it drive business results
1: yeah well i mean it's an awesome and important point like you think about pretty much every organization that you've been around or been involved in and if you're a company who has some sort of ownership stake in you, your board of directors is going to care about the profit of the business or its paths for growth. So great, there are these global trends. Great, there are these regional trends. But like at the end of the day, how is this going to work as it contributes into the profitability of my business? So we did do a dig into how to answer that question in a meaningful way. And the way that we did it is not super complex. We actually went out and we took a look at public market data that was available to us. And we did this ourselves first. And so I'm going to talk about what we did first. And then I'm going to talk about what's happened past that, not necessarily because of us, but um, what has happened past when we did it. So we went out and we did some work and we said, okay, let's take a look at an index of companies that's considered to be successful from a couple of different measures. But primarily from a financial perspective and the closest proxy to success financially is um, stock performance. So we took a look at the S&P 500 kind of most broadly. And we said, okay, let the S&P 500 as an index that we can see performance on over the course of the last several years. Great. What we also tried to find was a somewhat objective way to isolate companies who stood out as trusted brands. And we did this first by mapping a research report that's done each year by SurveyMonkey and Forbes, where they list out the... 100 Most Trusted Brands. And we took that list of 100 Most Trusted Brands and the S&P 500 and we actually compared those companies and those indexes together to see who performed better or worse or if it was negligible or not statistically valid. And I was pretty shocked when we did this research because our simple research that we did and our team came back and showed not just that the 100 Most Trusted Companies outperformed the S&P 500 by single digits, but The top 10%, like the top 10 of the 100 most trusted companies actually outperformed the S&P 500 by double digits. And we saw 12 and 15, 16, 17%. So that's just us. That's, you know, trust. But you got to verify if you hear somebody saying something on our right. podcast <laughs> that, right. you, that you don't know like <laughs> me. So over the course of the last couple of years, we've actually seen similar kinds of research being done. There's an organization called Trust Across America, and they do a report that comes out yearly right now that looks at the top 10 most trustworthy companies in the S&P 500. And then they look at the kind of facts-based performance to the S&P. They produced a report on March 19th of this year. And it actually shows the 10 most trustworthy, according to their kind of definition of trustworthy, 10 most trustworthy companies in the U.S. versus the S&P 500. And starting back in 2012, they performed. the most trustworthy companies performed at 23% better than the S&P 500. And as recently as 2017, the 10 most trusted U.S. companies performed at 52% better than the S&P 500. Wow. So this is a correlation. Like yeah. I'm certainly making a leap as a part of this story that we're walking through. But there's something that's there. Like I can sit as a marketer and have a conversation with our CEO, and we can have a conversation with the board that says, look, we see a trend that we think we need to make a bet in because this is a trend that's going to drive consumer behavior over the course of the next decade plus. The millennial generation is coming into its prime. And this is one of the key characteristics, we think, of one of the most important segments in the millennial population. We know that companies aren't trusted generally and absolutely not trusted in the U.S. and data has a relationship to it. And we also have this emerging theory that is proved by a lot of independent research now that says that from a public company perspective, trusted brands perform better than even the S&P 500. So we should be, as an organization, lining up our values, the things that we operate with, the data that we collect and use, all to support building trusted relationships with our customers. Because when we do that the rest of the business operation can be efficient and effective.
0: Interesting. Well, let's shift gears a little bit because I want to give, I want to ask you like how your products are built to you know, support the user. Like we've talked about that before, but how is like Mozilla, how are you putting this in practice? I know you talked about at the summit as well, your lean data practices, and maybe you could spend a little time talking about that, you know, and how, what you're trying to drive with, this notion of lean data, and how does that impact your marketing efforts?
1: Absolutely. So if the storyline is resonant to you as a listener of this podcast, like there's a simple equation that starts to develop. It's that when you as a business and as a brand start to increase trust, that's good. When you add it with the ability for you to reduce the risk for your customers, your users, your community to have their information exposed, that has a very direct relationship into equaling better business performance. The very next question would be, if you buy this equation, what do I do? Like, How do I do it? And you know, when we look back over Mozilla's history, one of the things that I, I believe we have taken for granted is that we started with a view that we should not collect information from people unless it was valuable for them to provide it to us. We just kind of took it for granted. We're just going to do it. We're going to design privacy in. We're going to design data protection in. And over the course of the last few years, we've started to recognize that us as an organization setting a practice to operate the way that we do actually can help more businesses learn new techniques that can help improve their business practices, which ultimately can equal building more trust with it.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: customers. We call the kind of our articulation of our privacy by design philosophy as a set of four lean data practices. And lean data is called lean data for a very specific reason. Like we have lived in as marketers the age of the promise of big data for the course of the last fifteen years. And I'm here to tell everybody that's listening on this podcast, like the promise of big data isn't what it's made out to be. Right? <laughs> right? Like you just can't put together some gigantic database and magically find your growth equations. It doesn't happen. So if we as marketers start to think about compartmentalizing the kind of information that we collect and adding value into our customers' lives, we can build trust. And as it relates to our business, we can be more effective. So our lean data practices are really about operationalizing this philosophy that we've had and sharing it with more and more people. So lean data is simple. Four lean data practices. First practice is kind of what I was just saying. Practice number one, ask yourself the question as a marketer, do I need the data that is being provided to me? If I need the data that's being provided to me, can I do one thing, add value back to the person who's giving it to me? That's not a question that we generally ask. Like, Think about really simple examples. Probably everybody listening to this program has had or been around an email marketing program. When you think about the amount of information that we either implicitly collect or explicitly ask for, maybe it's 15 different fields, maybe we're collecting a bunch of behavioral data. How much of it do we actually use to give value back? Right. And the answer is probably not very much of it. So first set of practices in the lean data practice overall are all built behind this idea that when we collect or ask for data, it is our absolute responsibility to deliver value back for that data. And it's a simple concept, but when you start to ask that question and challenge your general operational practices, like you're going to have important discussions in your business. We believe that you should be collecting the least amount of data possible so that you can provide value back to your consumers, and that helps you drive efficiency and effectiveness in your business. Sounds simple, complicated in practice. The second Lean Data practice is kind of a spin on the way that we've been talking about in marketing the relationship and IT over the course of the last decade. As much as the hype around big data being critical to all marketing operations has been around, we've also had this emerging storyline, not even emerging anymore, the storyline of marketing and IT have to work well together. In fact, IT and marketing are sometimes the same thing. And, right. and I think that gets lost behind the, the headlines of articles. And it gets lost because we don't really think about marketing like an IT organization in one specific regard. When we're in marketing and we say, I got to think like IT... Generally, that means superficially, I got to go find technologies that can help us be more efficient. But what it hasn't meant is that I have to put protections around the data that I'm collecting and the systems that are being collected in. If I'm in IT, my job in part is to think about risk mitigation. If I'm in marketing, my job is to think about collecting as much data as I can so I can find that magic growth equation. So what's it practically mean if I'm in marketing and I need to think about data protection? Well, the first question you should be asking as a CMO, as a head of marketing, as somebody who goes out and licenses software is, hey, I've just bought this fantastic new or leased this fantastic new marketing operations technology, and I need to understand where my customer's data sits and if it's being encrypted or not. And if you're not able to ask those kinds of questions as a marketer, you're doing a disservice to the customers that you work with. So marketers need to think about security just like IT does. We have to understand where our customers' data sit. We have to understand if it's encrypted or not. The second kind of piece of thinking about security has a lot more to do with information control that, again, IT teams think about quite a bit. Here's a scenario I'll paint out, and you probably have felt this or seen this before. you probably worked or known people that have worked with a company who has hired a contractor or a vendor, and that vendor or contractor has come in, and, and as a company, you've given them a laptop to use, or maybe you didn't, and they're using one of their own laptops. And that person who was a vendor or contractor, shows up, does a gig with you, does a research report, gives you that research report, and then they leave. Mm. What probably happened during their process of doing some research for you and putting together whatever it is they put for you is that they found access to your customer's data. They pulled it down into a spreadsheet, they put it into a PowerPoint presentation or a Google Doc, and then they left the company with it. And you didn't know that it happened. (laughs) Like we have to, right? And our customer's data is now out with somebody who was with us for a couple of weeks. And who knows what's going to happen with it? Maybe nothing bad, but it's still a, an opportunity, a risk opportunity that you don't want to have. So as a marketer, you really have to be thinking about how you set up access controls for the data that exists. And that's just not a part of the toolkit that we generally use in marketing. And the last idea in this kind of general, you got to think like IT more, building security more is that... We also have to ask the question of how long am I going to retain the data that my customers have given to me or that I've collected from them? And the answer isn't forever. And the answer probably isn't three or four years. Like You have a very specific need for data to be able to help add value back to your customers. You should be using it only in the duration of time that's absolutely necessary to drive that value. And once you're done, you have to get rid of it. And this is probably one of the I think, nastier problems that exist in the world of data collection today. It's that it's just being collected data, your data, my data is being collected by all kinds of different organizations. I don't know half the time and they're hanging on to it in perpetuity. And that's not developing trust for me. And then when I find out about it, I don't want to work with this company right. The kind of next lean data practice. So if we start out first with this idea, don't ask for data unless you're going to give value. Makes sense. Um, Hard in practice. The second is don't give a superficial nod to IT. IT has to think like marketing. You need to have practices in place where you understand how to deal with customer data, where it sits, how you're taking care of it, what its retention looks like, et cetera. The third is something that I I like scream from the mountaintops as much as I possibly can. And it it happens because of experience, or I yell from the top of mountaintops whenever I can, because I deal with this, I feel like, every single day. I'll I'll give you an example before I get into exactly what this lean data practice is. I use an iPhone. Yeah. And I get an update on the iPhone whenever they do the updates via iOS. I know that we're getting close to iOS 12, so I expect that we'll have a couple of dot releases in the big release. When I get an update for the OS, I get a notification on the phone. I click the notification, and then I get opened up into a page that covers up like three-quarters of the screen. <laughs> and the font is so small that even though I like small fonts, generally, people think that I'm crazy because I keep <laughs> fonts so small on my, on my laptop, I can't read it. And then on top of that when I try and get to the bottom of it I recognize that I'm scrolling for like 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes. You know there's a very like systemic issue that exists especially in the technology world and that's that we don't speak to people like people. We think they're this weird amalgam of robot lawyers. <laughs> and you know like there's nothing wrong with lawyers and there's nothing wrong with <laughs> robots but you know, I don't have the stamina to read through 10,000 words. I don't have the legal know-how to understand exactly what they're telling to me. So like, we have to change our, we have to change the way that we work as technology companies. We have to treat people like they're human beings. So this is lean data practice number three, like speak to people like people. Right. Don't speak to them like you expected the robot lawyers. There's a pretty amazing artist named Dima Yarvanovsky. I always hope that I pronounced the name, the last name correctly, especially because my name is <laughs> Kooky. And the installation that this artist put together kind of beautifully laid out the terms of services of some of the biggest social networks on these long pieces of paper that kind of represented the core brand colors. So they had Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and a handful of others. And the punchline here is that it t- took 60 minutes <laughs> <laughs> to read the terms and conditions of an online app. Wow. Right? Sixty minutes. And it like it's just staggering. The average terms and service that you and I click on a daily basis if we want to get an app has almost twelve thousand words in it. So like, if, it's insane. Right. Like that is absolutely unacceptable. So, you know, first and foremost, only collect data when you need it. Only collect it when you need it and you're going to add value for it. Second, make sure you're focused on operating like an IT organization as a part of marketing, specifically how you take care of and protect your customers' data. The third is like, talk to people like people. Right. To people like their people, not like their are robot lawyers. That's the absolute worst way to do it. And the fourth data practice, lean data practice really relates to us in marketing. These are all practices that live in marketing, but Truthfully, they can exist, these lean data practices can exist everywhere. They can exist in product. They should exist in product as much as they do in marketing. But really, specifically as advertisers, as marketers that do advertising, we need to be, and this is the fourth lean data practice, we need to be very conscientious about our advertising practices and their relationship and the trust that we're trying to build with our customers. If we're like, okay, our products and our websites and things that we're responsible for don't collect data unless I'm adding value back, if they take care of customers' data in a meaningful way, if we're doing our best to speak to people like their people and not robot lawyers, and we throw those practices out the window when we go out and advertise, Like that's disingenuous. And advertising as a practice has so many tools and so many networks that you can be on that aren't respectful of users' data, that do really creepy things that introduce your brand or your products to people in ways that don't set you off on the absolute right footing. So we think about the, the fourth lean data practice as really being conscientious about your advertising practices. We, as an organization, don't use retargeting. And we don't use retargeting because we think it's creepy. And we don't think that people understand why our ads would show up. And our research shows us this as well, using retargeting, even though it's a massive effective vehicle from an acquisition perspective on the internet, we never sell, buy, or share data with our any of our customers' data. Like, we just don't. And we also try and express our advertising policy by being transparent about what we choose to do and don't do. Like We pulled our ads off of Facebook and are still off of Facebook because we were uncomfortable with how Facebook as a channel was treating people's data and communicating how they're treating people's data. So we'll, we'll make uh, principled stances as a marketing organization because it relates to these lean data practices for us and because we believe that our cumulative work is contributing into the business being more effective because it's not just driving bottom line results. It's also focused on building trust for our customers.
0: You know, I'm sure there's listeners out there listening and thinking to themselves, wanting to ask this question, which is, do you ever worry that you're limiting yourself or in some ways, like tying your hands behind your back by taking on these lean data practices? What's been your experience? So the answer to that is Yes. Like if there's an anxiety that I have, it's
1: that we are going to operate with these kind of high ethical standards, kind of my words, and that's not going to give our teams access to what could be some of the most efficient practices in kind of modern marketing. But it's the right thing to do. And our team has shown that when we give them a challenge, don't work on this marketing channel, or we've chosen to not work on this marketing channel, they can make up the performance difference in areas where those practices didn't need to be used. So we've yet to feel the, I'm making a decision, and it's degrading the performance of the programs that we run. It doesn't mean we don't have to work harder. Right, I mean, right. like Our team has to work harder, there's no doubt. But we hope to be a example, a banner example of how an organization at the scale that we're operating in hundreds of millions of people use our product each month, 100 million plus use products every day. At our scale, if we can effectively show and continue to kind of repeat the story that you don't have to do nasty things as a marketer and you can have impact in the business in a meaningful way, we can influence the kind of greater good of the internet. And we want to do that with our products, we want to do that with our policy. I happen to think our advertising and data practices should also play a role in that as well.
0: I love that. So you talked about pulling from Facebook, but what have you tested or found to replace some of the tactics that you may have had to cease doing because of this? Yeah, well,
1: we keep a pretty healthy marketing mix generally. And so uh, part of what makes it possible for us to be able to kind of maneuver through decisions that we make, like pulling off of Facebook, is that this media mix can actually be kind of increased and decreased in different areas in a pretty significant way with very short turns. So we've done two things. So one we've set up our organization to operate in a way that is very nimble, very agile. And I can talk about that for a second. And the second is that we've had this very healthy media mix that allows for us to switch things around. So the media mix for us, I'll talk about first, and then I'll talk about the way that we've set up our organization second. The media mix for us is uh, fairly heavy in digital, which makes sense because our products are primarily those that you find on the internet. That has a bunch of different channels that sit inside of it. We've actually found that some uh, social networks that aren't Facebook actually perform well for us, and they adhere to the data practices that we work in. We have programmatic buying practices that we operate with, where we have uh, ironclad agreements with the partners that we work with, that the data that comes to us through our customers only stays with us and that the retention policies of the third parties that we use are actually uh, different than the general population. So we protect our users by operating uniquely with uh, different partners out in the space. So we're able to kind of ramp up in social channels with a programmatic buying. Search is a big area for us as well online. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that, we actually do quite a bit of work offline. And that offline work shows up as out of home marketing kind of generally, but it also shows up as events. And events for us has been probably one of the most interesting learnings over the past couple of years. We find that when we spend time in real life and introduce the values (laughs) that we have as an organization and their relationship to the digital products that we've built, it has a really strong pull through for the core brand messages that we care about and ultimately has a relationship into the number of people that install and use our products. So we'll shift around in that kind of -of out-of-home event to kind of general out-of-home advertising digital as well. And the last piece for us is that we actually develop original content. This is I mean, the playbook that I'm walking through probably doesn't sound dramatically different than what everybody else is thinking about, but the original content piece for us has been also really interesting and exciting learning. So we've developed a podcast called IRL that's a Webby Award winner and one of the top two percent of podcasts or three percent of podcasts on iTunes that's all focused on education online and has a very uh, tight relationship into Firefox as well. So we continue to think about how do we extend out in uh, content development, original content development, because that original content development is an indicator for us if people are finding it and we're getting it out in front of the right people, that we've got the right kind of interest that pulls through into our products well. So that's how we think about shifting around. Uh, Probably not terribly different than the portfolio management of many of the listeners that are on on this podcast. On the the flip side of that, kind of the complement to it is that we've tried to future-proof our organization to be able to deal with whatever changes get thrown at us, whatever kinds of shifts in the business need to happen. And we've done that by deploying an agile model, a lean model. So we're a 100-person plus team. And we actually work Completely in lean. So we've got 65% of the organization that works on what we would call a durable team. A durable team is a cross-functional group from within marketing. So you have designers and writers and demand gen specialists and and and, and that sit in one team focus on one business problem. And it allows for our organization to think about shifting not the strategy, but the emphasis on the tactics by investing in different kinds of team structure. So we found that this kind of future-proof for our organization that's built behind the structure that we put together is one of the most meaningful ways for us to have a relationship into the shifting needs that we have in our media mix. I probably make it sound like it's perfect and easy. <laughs> it's not, right? Like right. everything is always a little bit more difficult when you get into it. But I really think that when you consider how you operate as a marketing organization, you've got to be thinking about the sophistication of your media mix, the programs you have in the play, and the way that you work as well, and the what and the how.
0: Couple of things that were interesting to me. I mean, it, the notion of events in a digital product offering—you know—mix I think is pretty interesting. And had one person on the podcast. It's been a while back. A brand Cotopaxi. I don't know if you know. It's an outdoor equipment brand, but they do mm-hmm. these events called Questables, and they're a full—I think it's a 24-hour type event of you know, searching in their local community, doing some volunteer work with your friends. Mm-hmm. But they're not only they've turned these events into moneymakers, but also, I mean, they're one of the largest elements of their marketing mix. So it's just interesting how people use events to varying degrees because it is such an old concept right getting face to face with your <laughs> with your consumer your customer
1: yeah I think you know we see cycles repeating cycles everything old is new again like that's a very real phenomenon and it's kind of intuitive and easy to say and with 2020 hindsight of you know we've been really ramping up over the course of the last 15 years or 18 years if you think about that like the real commercialization of the internet we've been ramping up digital interactions. And it's leaving a void socially and culturally, like in real life and online life are effectively the same thing. And so you can't, over-index on one of the other as a human, and you shouldn't over-index on one of the other as a company either.
0: Right. Well, and it's the notion of being face-to-face is the original social media, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Hey, I I went to a meetup yesterday. You did what? Was it a chat group online? No, no, like in real life. Oh, okay.
0: Exactly. So one other question that I had a little bit earlier, and I just want to circle back to it, is you mentioned for whatever reason you designed, I think it was you designed privacy into the product. At Mozilla. Yeah. And I just want to circle back to that. Do you know why that happened?
1: I do. And it wasn't, um, if I characterize it as for whatever reason, I think that what I really intend to say is that I think we took it for granted mm-hmm. how we operate. It didn't happen by accident, but I really think from a marketing and brand perspective, it is unbelievably important for people to understand how. Much Mozilla as an organization and Firefox as a product is looking out for you. And we do that by our operational practices. The way that we one of the ways we do that is by our operational practices, the way that we collect and use any kind of data from you if you give us the ability to do that. Our organization started first and foremost behind this mission that we have, which is to maintain an open, accessible internet. And part of that is being able to be in control. And it's always been about that. And that shows up as a design principle in the products that we've built for the entirety of the history of our organization. And it's really owed to the foresight that our founders had. Our founders, our chairwoman who is still active every single day, Mitchell Baker, the founding team, all believed that it was important for individuals to be in control. And that needed to manifest itself in the way that we develop products. And it was going to have a very really real relationship into the data footprint that we collected. They had the foresight when they started this organization 15, 16 plus years ago, to build that into our core mission. And today, it's even more important. A few years ago, when if you and I were to have had the same conversation, you'd be like, yeah, maybe I'm not that concerned about my data. I don't have anything to hide. There's nothing, like whatever, like people are giving me value, companies are giving me value for it. And if you and I would have had this conversation four years ago, you probably would have been like, that guy sounds like he's a conspiracy theorist, maybe. (laughs) Right? And what we found is that this organization its view, its perspective, its mission has really found a home because of the very real need that exists because of the way that the internet has developed. So I think that the foresight of our founders has put us in a position where we are really well positioned from a consumer perspective to take good care of them right now, because we have been doing this forever. It's not new. And it will be new to most organizations. So I feel even more pressure right now as a CMO because I want more people to understand this because I know it to be true. And I believe that when they get value from our products, if you like using Firefox and you understand that we have your back, you're going to go talk to more people and tell them about what we do at Firefox and what we do at Mozilla. And when more and more people choose to use our products, the vote with their choice every day it's going to help us influence a more healthy internet in the future. And that's going to be an internet where companies respect people like people, not like robotic lawyers.
0: Right. Well, I have just two, I think two more questions. And what I typically do with these is I kind of set aside the topic that we've been talking about and kind of probe a little bit on you, the person that we've been talking to. And the question that I love asking is, you know, was there an experience in your past that defines or makes up who you are today?
1: Yeah, it's a... uh, cumulative set of experiences that I had as a young kid growing up in a little town outside of Eugene, Oregon. My mom was a rock concert promoter and kind of a self-made business entrepreneur. And as a kid, i I really didn't understand what entrepreneurship was. Like we never talked about it in our house. But I remember so clearly as a kid from, you know, 6, 7 years old, going to concerts, being backstage, understanding that there were multiple people that were involved, an ecosystem of people that were involved in this one experience that a bunch of people got to have in one night where I just got up on stage and performed. And I found that really interesting and intriguing. And this idea that ecosystems exist to make a great experience and when you understand and nurture that ecosystem, like like that experience is even more impactful and meaningful because everybody can get value from it. I love that. And and so kind of seeing this and feeling it as a kid without really ever being, the, being able to put a point on it has influenced the way that I think about kind of life in general, but really from a professional perspective. Like I know that my functional area of marketing is important and I know that the health of our organization is important and what we have to do is impactful. But I also really feel like deep down that it's part of my responsibility to be a broker for the ecosystem that helps us build a great Experience for our consumers. Like I've got to find ways to develop strong relationships with our product teams, with our engineering teams, with our executive teams, with the ecosystem of people, including the consumers that we're marketing to and, and getting products to. Because when that ecosystem's healthy, they can kind of solve whatever you need to, and the experience is always going to be great.
0: Love that. Well, last question for you. What drives you? What keeps you going?
1: I have this deep-seated desire for things to be right. And as just like in general, I know that sounds kind of silly, but I have a very idealistic view that you can do things ethically, you can treat people well, you can be effective in business, you can have great relationships personally, when you really, really break it down. For me, like my drive is all about trying to be happy and help the people around me be happy and help them be successful as well. And that is this idealistic drive that I've just got deep down in my belly that keeps me going.
0: Well, thank you so much for the time today. It's been fascinating.
1: I've really enjoyed being here. I hope the listeners enjoyed the show as well. Thanks for having me.
0: Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at Atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K dot Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. With writing and editing by Kevin Greeley. Social media support by Megan Woods. Art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,